Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in Galatians, continuing our study there. Galatians 4, we're going to look at 21 through 31. Uh, you can be praying for me. i uh, talk about this in just a second. I had hernia surgery like nine days ago, have not slept well, and during the first service, I almost had to call Hutch up here to finish preaching. I almost passed out, so I had to uh, preach from a chair, which I normally make fun of, but I may have to do that today. So uh, I am thankful as we open the word that the Lord is pleased uh, to show his strength in human weakness and praying that he will do that uh, this morning. Before we get into the text, just a word of announcement. We have uh, next Saturday our party on the block, uh, two to four o'clock. That's a great time for us to certainly have fellowship of the saints, but also a wonderful time for us to invite our friends, those we might even want to share the gospel with. There's going to be a lot going on. You can sign up uh, for that uh, at the events page on our website, uh, but please make plans to be here. That's going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. It's been an interesting 10 days or so for my family. In the past 10 days, as I mentioned, uh, I've had hernia surgery. Uh, Then also my wife and I celebrated our fourth wedding anniversary And then tomorrow, Lord willing, uh, we are going to close on a house. So if you're thinking about anything as as far as a gift for us, uh, steak and ice chips we'll accept right now. Pastor Dwayne is preaching away at Covenant Hope, one of our uh, sister churches, a a replant that we helped be a part of. Uh, He invited all of you guys to to join him there this week, so I'm glad some of you remained behind uh, to hear me preach this morning. Every single commentator I read and every single pastor I read on this text Uh, said these were the most difficult verses in all of Galatians. So Pastor Dwayne gave an ailing man the most difficult verses in all of Galatians. So thank him for me later. Uh, But indeed, he's given me a wonderful text to to look at this morning. And given the complexity of the text, I want to make the application uh, simplified this morning. Simple and yet, I believe, glorious. And I hope I can show why. You know, much of life is is about questions, and many of those questions are questions of identity, right? We we ask questions of people when we get to know them for the first time, like, like, where are you from? You know, what family are you from? What do you do? What are your hobbies? What's your favorite food, and why is it queso? And the text before us this morning opens with a question, and then it has a series of pairings or a series of juxtapositions seeking to answer that question, which really comes down to a question about identity. So in keeping with a simple application, my goal this morning is for us to think on who we are, that we would know who we are, who we really are, that we would know how we became so that we would really then believe those things about ourselves and how we became like that. And then finally, that we would let that identity of who we really are, who we truly are, and how we have become so by utter and sheer grace that it would change everything then about us. And so let me pray uh, after I read these 10 verses or so, and then we're going to ask for God's help. The Apostle Paul writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. 
Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will become more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but we are children of the free woman. Father, thank you so much for your word. I do ask for your help now, and I know I need it. Father, would you give me the strength necessary to to teach? And Father, would you give me the confidence in your word, confidence that I need to know that this is absolutely for the good of your people? Father, help us to think on eternal things this morning, to see ourselves rightly. And then, Father, because we do, would it change everything about who we are? So help us now, Father, would you show us yourself? Father, would you then show us our sin? And then would you show us our Savior? We pray all of this is done for the sake and the fame of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You know, the family that you belong to says a lot about who you are, and that's because the family that you come from most oftentimes radically shapes who you are. For instance, if you are like me, you're an Aiken man like me, that means that you cannot fix anything. It means you can't sing. It means you can't draw or paint anything. You can't really cook. Nobody has ever accused my dad or my three brothers and I of being Renaissance men, that's for sure. We can, however, talk to you about sports, and so we think we're well-versed in the things that matter most. In fact, even that comment shows you a little bit of a testimony about my upbringing. The family you belong to shapes your worldview. It shapes your behavior. It shapes your identity. As I said at the beginning, this text brings up a question and then a list of comparing pairs, and it is a question of identity. It's a question that I want to consider this morning, and it's the question, who are you and who do you desire to be? Or to say it another way, it confronts us with the question, whose child are you and how did you become so? Now, here's the context. Paul has been trying to drive home to the Galatians that they are sons and not slaves. They are no longer slaves to sin, slaves to idolatry, slaves to false gods. And here he's going to continue showing them that they are not even slaves to the law. And he's going to do so by appealing to the scriptures, some of which we have already read, namely Genesis 16 and 17 and Genesis chapter 21. And he does this in order to deal with an argument from the Judaizers. We've been talking about them along our study here in Galatians. They are those false Jewish Christians who 
keep telling the Galatian Gentiles that in order for them to become true Christians, faith is not enough. They must also now become Jews, which would have included circumcision. So Paul is drawing a list of contrasting identities in order to distinguish for these true believers, including these Galatian Gentiles, and he's trying to do so in order to distinguish them from the false believers. That includes even Orthodox Jews. And this pericope in front of us this morning serves as the culmination of an argument that Paul has been making for two chapters. An argument that has been seen throughout our series that justification comes by faith and not by works. And this builds here in these verses to a crescendo that serves as a transition to the final two chapters of the book. In fact, these first couple or these two chapters in the last couple of weeks have shown so much of who we are. Some, oftentimes we call it gospel indicatives, telling us what our identity is. And this will now give way in Galatians 5 and 6 to telling us how we should live in light of who we are. It will give way to exhortations in the future. Yet Paul is going to drive home justification by faith, and he's going to do so in a confronting and in a shocking way. He's going to say to these Judaizers, these, these Jews who so badly and so desperately wear this badge of being a son of Abraham as though it is somehow a badge of honor and a gold star. And he's going to tell them this, what's going on with you because of what you are teaching, it is exactly the opposite. You are telling these Galatian Gentiles that they are slaves, that they need to become like you. Instead, it is you who needs to become like them. Those who rely on the gospel by faith are actually the free sons of Abraham and you Judaizers who rely on the law are actually the slave sons of Abraham. Which brings up the first pair, pairing of identity and the question, are you a child of the slave or a child of the free woman? Verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Here is the question that Paul sets the stage with, and it's specifically why I put in my question, why I added in my question, this idea of who do you want to be or who do you desire to be? Paul knows that these Judaizers have been effective in their arguments to the Galatian Christians about the law. And in particular, this argument, as I've already stated, that in order for them to actually be Christians, they must be first become Jews and be circumcised. And so he basically says to these Galatian brothers and sisters, he says, okay, since you have become obsessed with the law, or you might even say it like this, because you have raised the law to a place it does not rightfully have, do you actually know the law? Paul has here is using the term law, not just to refer to the Ten Commandments, but to refer to the Ten Commandments, but also the first five books of the Bible, or what's so often called the Torah. Paul is setting up for them that even the Torah itself will not defend the position of the Judaizers. As Paul is shrewdly teaching the Galatians while also rebuking the Judaizers, and he's doing so on their own terms. Paul will point out that works-based righteousness, including any necessity of circumcision, is not the purpose of the law. It gives the law a function it has no power to fulfill. Now, I do think it's important at this point to remind ourselves, and Pastor Duane has done this along the way, of what Paul has already saw, said regarding the law in Galatians. The law is good. 
The law has been given to us by God. It reveals holiness, righteousness. It reveals love of neighbor. And yet the law is only good if it is used rightly or if it is rightly understood. God never intended for the law to be a means of salvation. Rather, as we have seen along the way, he intended for the law to be a guide, to be a teacher, to be a pointer to where true salvation can be found. Namely, the law highlights holiness, thus it exposes our sin, and by so doing, it points us not to ourselves for righteousness, it points us to another, to the law fulfiller, the man of righteousness who keeps the law in our place. Or to say it another way, or to see the law in another way, Paul's arguing actually makes the law something that is an enslaver rather than a helpful teacher. So Paul says to these Galatians, he says, not so fast. You need to rightly understand the law. And he does that by asking the question, do you really listen to it? And now he's going to show them why that is the wrong use of the law. Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. Most scholars believe that Paul is simply offering his own interpretation of the Sarah Hagar, uh, Isaac Ishmael story, precisely because this is what the Judaizers are appealing to. They are saying, again, unless you become Jews like us, circumcised and under the law, you are still Gentile slaves, sons of Hagar. You were not children of the promise who received the inheritance that comes from Sarah. Now, if you know the Old Testament, and certainly if you know the way of true salvation, you can understand why this argument was beginning to be effective, why this argument seemed legitimate to the Galatians. As you set in opposition works, following the law in order to gain favor with God against simple faith as a way of receiving favor with God, certainly to a human way of thinking, this way seems more legit. This way seems more real. This way requires something of us. And so as they're making this argument of a works-based system, it seems legitimate to these Gentile Christians. And that is why they desire to be under the law. They believe that by being under the law, it would reveal something of who they are and the promises that they will then receive. It reveals something of their status. It reveals something of their identity. And yet Paul is using the status of these two sons to point out something about their spiritual state. He is pointing out something about the spiritual status of these two groups. Indeed, one group is made up of slaves, and yet it is not the group that you think. In fact... The group of slaves is the Judaizers, and the group of the free is the Gentile Galatians. Which leads us to the second peering. Are you children of the flesh or children of the promise? Look at verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Paul is continuing to highlight, not only do these two sons have different statuses, not only do they have different mothers, but they also have different circumstances surrounding their birth. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. Since Sarah was having no children, 
This is the story he's referring to, if you don't know the Old Testament. Since Sarah has no children to fulfill the promise that God has made to Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations, Sarah schemes for him to have a son. So she tells him, go into your servant Hagar, and she will give you a son. And that's where Ishmael comes from. While Isaac, he's the son of promise because he is born to Sarah when she is over 90 years old. And this is crucial to the argument for Paul. This is crucial to us understanding what he's trying to get at in this text. One of these sons is born by natural process. The other is born by supernatural providence. One is born by proxy and plan. One is born by prophecy and promise. One is born by ordinary means. One is born by extraordinary means. One is born by human scheming. The other is born by divine sovereignty. Here's what Paul is unveiling. And we need to understand this. The child of the slave woman was born by works, while the child of the free woman was born by nothing but grace. Ishmael is born from an attitude that says, God helps those who help themselves. While on the other hand, Isaac is born by divine sovereignty of a gracious God who acts on behalf of his people precisely because they cannot act for themselves because they cannot bring about the promise by themselves. Why do I say that? Well, again, Sarah's over 90 years old and there's not enough doctor visits in the world to reverse the natural process of natural biology with her. It is impossible apart from the divine intervention of the Lord. And so it is with the gospel. Ishmael, born of the slave, represents those who seek salvation and favor with God by human means and human effort. Isaac, born of the free woman, stands for those who receive salvation as a result of divine grace with absolute reliance upon the promises of God. For indeed, he was born by grace and we who are new covenant Christians have been reborn by grace. Flesh plus law leads to slavery. But the promise relied upon by faith frees us from our striving. It frees us from our schemes to make ourselves acceptable to God. Which leads to the third pairing. Are you a child of the present Jerusalem or the Jerusalem above? Complicated verses, verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Again, these can be somewhat complicated. In one sense, all Paul is saying here is, let me say this another way, or let me use an illustration in order to explain the point. He's continuing this, this, this juxtaposition. He's using what he calls allegory to prove essentially what the whole book of Galatians is about. Now, I did a lot of study on this part of the text, and I'm going to try to make it as succinct as possible for time's sake. But I believe Paul is not using what we would typically call allegory here. Instead, he's using what we might call typology. True allegory, just for way of explanation, true allegory is taking a thing and making it represent something else to make a point, even if there seems to be no grounding for that representation. For instance, and we're going to look at this text here in a couple of weeks on our Missions Emphasis Sunday, but oftentimes preachers will use allegory to, to kind of allegorize the five stones that David picks up in the brook when he's going to fight Goliath. 
And they'll say these five stones represent the Bible, prayer, the Holy Spirit, the church, and the Great Commission, because that's the weapons that God uses to fight Satan. That's allegory. My favorite take on the David and Goliath story as far as why he took five stones is because R.G. Lee says, the, the great Baptist preacher says, because he was told that Goliath had four brothers. We'll talk more about that in a couple weeks. Typology, on the other hand, which best fits, I think, with the word corresponds in verse 25, takes a thing to illustrate a corresponding truth. And the way it does it is it finds a basis or a ground in clear revelation, in the scriptures themselves, which reveals a building pattern. It reveals a type that finds its culmination and or fuller meaning in a larger spiritual reality. For instance, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament finds greater meaning, finds correspondence, culminates ultimately in a bloody cross where the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. So I hope that helps set the, the stage for what's happening. Paul, I believe, is using allegory to say typology. And he says now, these two ways of living that I've been unpacking, salvation by works or salvation by grace, these two ways of living actually represent two covenants. And these two covenants has as their representative two mothers. And here's how forceful he is in verse 25. Verse 24 and 25, against the covenant led by Hagar which again represents works-based, law for righteousness, circumcision for favor. He says, here's how heinous that covenant is. She is actually birthing children for slavery. And even more forceful than that, this teaching is so heinous that Paul calls the place it is emanating from that is, being, that is present day Jerusalem, that which should have been the capital city of the people of God. He says of that place, it is actually Arabia. It is a city that is now occupied by the children of Hagar rather than the children of Sarah from, because from it is coming a teaching and a covenant that actually only enslaves people. Paul then flips to the other side, verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. On the other hand, Paul says, this other covenant, those who rely on faith rather than being a good Jew, they actually belong to the free Jerusalem, which comes from above. He does so by again appealing to the scriptures. He looks at the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 54. Isaiah is writing to the people of God as they are in exile. He's reminding them exile will not be the end of the story. In fact, there is an ingathering coming of God's people. Exile and slavery even do not spell the end of the people of God. Once again, God will work supernaturally in order to, about, to bring about offspring, in order to bring about new birth. As where there seem to be none, there will be many. As there seem to be barrenness with Sarah, there will be life. There will be life that is brought about by grace. So trust in the promise and see what God is doing in you. Again, the inference. The people of God. This will be picked up by John in Revelation 21. It's pictured as a new Jerusalem that will come down out of heaven. And it's not made of children 
who made themselves children of promise by their works. No, the Jerusalem above has only made those who become children by an act of God's sheer grace. And I think even just this reliance upon what he's saying in Isaiah 54, he's saying to us, he's saying to small Galatian churches, this may seem small right now. This may seem insignificant right now. In the grand scheme of things, open door may seem small and insignificant. But God is saying through his prophet Isaiah, Paul is reminding the church at Galatians that God will actually work on behalf of his people. He will make them mighty. He will make them prosperous. So much so that one day they will represent a people that no one will even be able to count. So he says, rejoice, sing at this news. Even if you're like us, Achan men and cannot sing, sing at what the gracious God is doing on your behalf. This comes about by grace and not by works. This comes about by promise and not by the flesh. This comes about by sovereignty and not by scheming. So as recipients of God's favor, rejoice. And I think this leads to an application that I think is really, really important for us in 2022 America. And I'll connect it to a question as well. The question is, where is your home? Paul uses two images in these middle verses, and they're certainly connected to identity. They certainly should affect how we view ourselves, then affect how we live. And these two images or these two questions are, who is your mother and where are you from? Mothers have a wonderful way of representing the home. They, they represent how you were nurtured. I've shared this story before. I think, but one of the worst, the worst meal experience of my entire life was the first time I had to eat a Thanksgiving meal without my family. Part of the reason I was playing basketball at Murray State, I could not go home with them to extended family in Georgia. And so I went with a teammate home. And at this meal, like we ate a lot of vegetables, which I don't normally eat. But the worst part about the meal, what made it the worst meal of all time to me was at Thanksgiving dinner, there was no gravy. Yeah, not good. I'll just say this. My mom, she's a gravy woman. We got gravy with almost everything. My mom, gravy woman, in this story, she represents Sarah. The non-gravy woman, she represents Hagar and slavery. Who your mother is says so much about who you are and where you came from. And that leads to the other image that Paul is appealing to here. Know where your home is. Know where your origin is. Is your origin from above or is your origin from below? I think that raises an important question for us. Question is, what do you dwell on most or what do you most identify with? Things above or things below? Paul wants them, he wants us to most passionately identify with things that are above because those are the things that are eternal. Doesn't mean that earthly things are unimportant. It certainly, it just simply means that they're temporal. So a way to wrestle with this question is, what do we most quickly identify, identify with? What do we get most worked up about? Things like job, status, social media followers, political parties. Or is more of our time and energy spent dwelling on things above, like the gospel, like our identity as children of the Most High, like our, the fact that we're part of the household of faith? 
This really hit me years ago. Uh, there was a, a lady in, in a fellowship that I was a part of, a member. And I remember on the day that uh, Obamacare passed, I remember seeing, and I counted it, she tweeted 45 times in 60 minutes, slamming Obamacare. Now, I think it's a perfectly legitimate question for us to, to, to wrestle with. Is that a good thing for human flourishing? But what struck me was not that. What struck me was in the five years I had known her, I had never seen her put up 15 things about Jesus in the space of one hour. 45 things politically motivated. And I'm just confronted with my own sin. So often the things that are in front of us seem so much more important. Things that are going to be burned up by fire seem so much more important to us. And the thing, again, it is not to say they're not unimportant. The thing is they are temporal and they are not eternal. What's obvious in this text is the Galatian Christians are getting so twisted about what other men think of them. They're so driven by what others think of them, temporal things. Instead, our primary concern should be about the things that are above, pleasing God rather than pleasing men, for our origins and our home come from heaven itself. Final section, quickly, are we children of Ishmael or children of Isaac? Paul writes this, now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise. But just as at that time he was he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Paul drops the hammer. He emphatically points out, he tells the uncircumcised Gentile Galatians, you are actually the free descendants of Abraham. He continues to imply, apply this story from the past to their current situation. He says, just as Ishmael persecuted Isaac, it alludes to Genesis 21.9, he says, so now these legalistic self-righteous Jews who believe that salvation comes from human effort, they are persecuting you who are the true Christians and the children of promise. Isn't it ironic then how the Judaizers are acting? Their outreach is more akin to persecution than it is to evangelism. And this is consistent with redemptive history. Jesus, in fact, in Matthew 23, tells the Pharisees, thus you testify against yourselves because you confess that you are the sons of those who have murdered the prophets. And the self-righteous religious leaders are the very ones who put righteous Stephen to death. And this is also a type. It culminates in the fact that the only truly righteous one is handed over by the Sanhedrin to a Roman cross. Do not then, brothers and sisters, be surprised when this type of persecution comes our way. Satan hates, hates when we mess with salvation by work and by merit. And the reason he hates it is because his weapons are weapons of accusations and guilt and shame. Here's how Satan wants to use the law. He wants to hold up a standard that you will never meet. And then he wants to beat you over the head for not meeting it. That's how the Judaizers are using the law. And sometimes so it is with us. When we see works or certainly when we see the law as something that can save us, that has the power to save us, rather than a guide showing us that we need the work of somebody else.
So Paul says, and look at verse 30, but what does the scripture say? He says, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. He gives them an exhortation, and it could be as little as him appealing, like, don't give in to this, or it could be as much, some commentators say, of him saying, excommunicate these people. Either way, he's at least saying, do not be ensnared by them. Do not be tripped up by them. Do not be determined by them. Put off a slave mentality. Do not associate with it. Certainly do not be drawn to it. So Paul is implying, why in the world would you who are free be so drawn to those who are enslaved? Why be so worked up by them? Their mother is not our mother. Their origin is not our origin. Their destiny is certainly not our destiny. And then this is an amazing verse. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave. He says, but of the free woman. Notice what Paul is doing. This is why I call it wonderful. Paul shifts. He has been using throughout, particularly in verse 28, Paul shifts from using a plural you, y'all, as we say in the South, to now in verse 31, he is using a plural we. He's been exhorting them about their identity, and now Paul identifies with them. In fact, he is confident that they're going to hear what he is saying to them. He's confident they're not going to go back into slavery. And he calls them brothers. And then he says, we are children of the free woman. You might say, brothers and sisters, Paul ends telling them, know who you are and how you have become. So live by faith for by so doing, it will reveal where you come from. And then I believe sometimes the verse divisions are unhelpful, but I believe he gives the application in verse 1 of chapter 5. Dwayne will look more at this next week. He says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's saying don't go back to idols. Don't go back to false gods. Don't go back to works and behaviors to gain favor with God. In fact, if you live in that kind of way, it will be an intolerable burden for you. Rather know this, that his love for you is not based upon your performance. It is based upon his amazing grace. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not a Christ follower, this is what we want you to know. On the final day, you will not garner favor with God by your own merit, by your own performance. You will not stand before the judge of all based upon your own righteousness. You need a righteousness that is not your own. But the greatest news in all the world is there is someone who has provided it. Paul talks about this to the church at Rome. He says this in Romans 3, and again, these are amazing verses. He says this, Now a righteousness from God has been manifested apart from the law. Listen to this because it's consistent with what he's saying here in Galatians 4. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Listen to this, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through redemption in Christ 
Jesus. Here's what he says. He did this at the cross. Here's how he says it. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Literally, he satisfied the wrath of God against sinners. He put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forebears, his patience, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is amazing. This is how the gospel is great news because it bridges the gap of a holy God and unholy, sinful, law-breaking sinners like us. This is how God can maintain his holiness. This is how he can be just in dealing with sin and also be a justifier through Jesus Christ, who by his perfect law-keeping righteousness holds up the end of God's holiness and by his sacrificial death on our behalf atones for sinners like us. How can you take hold of that? It is what we've been talking about in Galatians 4. You take hold of it by faith and by faith alone. If that's you and you're here and you're not a Christian, we want to talk to you about that. And then quickly for us, brothers and sisters who are already in Christ, three concluding applications. First one is this, know where we're headed. I made allusion to it. John says this in Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Listen to this, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will deal with them. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Talks about the heaven, or talks about the Jerusalem from above. Simply that is us, the church. We are being sanctified now so that on the final day, we will be handed over as a gift to the captain of our salvation. We will be handed over as a bride to a husband who has redeemed us at the cost of his own blood. But also know where we are now. We are part of the people of God. What's taking place even in this Sunday gathering is so much more important than you can even realize. Hebrews 11 talks about how Abraham is looking for a city above. He's looking for a city whose builder and foundation is God himself. And then in Hebrews 12, he picks up this theme. The writer of Hebrews picks up this thing of a heavenly Jerusalem. Here's what he says. He says this, but you, talking about the gathering of saints, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in the festival gathering, and to the assembly of the first born, who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, a mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Think on your identity. Think about this idea and this sense of belonging. The church is not a club you come to with people who like similar things to you. The church is an absolute affirmation of who you are. I love that quote from Tim Keller who says this, no one dares wake up the king at three in the morning except his child. And that's who we have become in Christ Jesus. Those who can, as Hebrew says, approach the throne room of grace with great confidence. 
which leads to the final question, the final application, which is know how we got here. Ultimately, our existence will come down to a question and it will come down to a covenant as to which family we belong to. And on the last day, there will be questions posed of us There'll be questions about who are we? How did we become like that? And yet the most important questions on that day are not going to be what kind of spouse were you? What kind of parent were you? What kind of employee were you? It's not even going to be what kind of church member were you? As important as those things are. No, and on that day, the question that will be asked of us, that will be hanging out there, the answer of look at my works and how good they are will be wholly insufficient. No, on that day, as all of our sins are brought into the tribunal of God, and as we stand there before the one who knows Everything we've ever done. Who knows? Everything we've ever thought. Who knows everything that we are. We will stand before him and the question will be, why should I let you in? My appeal to you this morning is this. The most freeing answer in the entire world is simply this. I have but one plea. That Christ has shed his blood for me. On that day, it's not going to be, look how good I am. Look at everything I've done for you. One preacher points this out about the thief on the cross who never knew right doctrine who never was a member of a church. And he hypothesized that as the question was posed to him, why should I let you in? His only answer was the man on the middle cross said, I can come. You want to know what freedom is? That's freedom. And it is my prayer that that's how we live, that we live by faith in the one who died for us. Indeed, is Christ has, for freedom, set us free. Father, we are thankful for your eternal word. And Father, we're thankful for your eternal plan. We are so undeserving. Father, may who we are and how we have become so change everything about us. So, Father, now as we turn our attention to the table, would you feed us not only from the preaching of the word, but from the act of the gospel itself, the Lord's Supper. Father, I'm done. But I pray you keep working in our midst. And we know you will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.